Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today. I have got my colleague, Jamie Claire Kaiser, who is a managing principal at Zweig Group, and just an all-around, well, I won't say the word, but she, she knows her stuff. And so, Jamie Claire, I wrangled her to come on the podcast because I wanted to talk about M&A activity in the design industry. It has gone through the roof. It's gone bonkers is the best way to describe it over the past couple of years. And so, Jamie Claire agreed to come on the show today and just to join me and give us an update from her perspective as somebody that you know oversees a lot of the act, M&A activity at Zui Group, pretty much all of it. And she has an, an amazing team behind her that are really making things happen, but they're moving at such a breakneck pace. And I was able to pull her away from the, the negotiation table to just sit down with us on today's episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. So without further ado, Jamie Claire Kaiser, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, you and I talked earlier this week and I told you, I just wanted to talk about you know, M&A activity and just what's happening in the design industry. It seems like this season that we're in, as we come out of the pandemic, the pace of, of activity, the pace of transactions that are happening in the design industry are unlike anything that I've ever seen. And I mean, I've been around the industry. I know I'm dating myself now, but I've been around since 97. But I can't remember back in the day looking at Mark or any of the other folks that were working in M&A back then working at the pace that you guys are working at right now. So what's going on? We are in a phase in the AEC industry and the economic cycle that has really set this space up for an insane amount of interest in, in transactions and in consolidation. There just are a lot of factors that all came together um, at the same time uh, to create kind of this feeding frenzy within the M&A market in our space. Man. And so... With this frenzy, I mean, even when you got into this industry, was that like maybe 2014, 2015? Because you came well, we on. We don't have to name. We don't have to name uh, years. <laughs> <I know. Randy. laughs> 
but you know, but you've seen some distinct differences between that those early days and now. I mean, it's just there's just been a lot that that has happened. It has changed. I mean, I, I, this sounds like hyperbole, but truly everything about the M&A space within AEC has changed since I've been here. It, almost nothing is is the same as it was from the kinds of firms that join forces to the pacing of a deal and how long it takes to move forward to kind of throwing out governors on just best practices and things that have held steady with like 30 years of our data backing it up. This isn't just, you know, a generalization. This is this the way that things traditionally were done have been thrown completely out of the window. And it, it's a really interesting opportunity to, I guess, take like best practices from any space and apply them to our industry so that we can be better deal makers. Yeah. You know, and I was thinking about, I was looking at some statistics as I was reading some old articles from the Zweig letter. And there was one that was just talking about, and this was, this was fairly recent when we went through the Zweig group hot firm list. There were, I think, 76% of the hot firms grew through M&A. And I saw that and I was like, wow, I can't believe how many people have actually kind of, you know, in my mind, dipped their toe in the pool of mergers and acquisitions and grew that way. But then, you know, when you start to think about all the other challenges that this industry is faced with, labor, just, you know, just, you know, organic growth, right? It's not as easy as it used to be. I mean, it, it, it almost makes sense that firms would have to look at this as an option for a way to grow and a way to continue to remain relevant in the verticals that they, they serve within this industry. It, absolutely. And, and with, I mean, record backlog as well, it's, it's not possible to just continue to hire one person at a time and to cycle through just the, the insane demand for services too. I mean, it really is being driven by all facets of the market from hiring to, to demand for services to aging out um, of, of the ownership group uh, demographic within our space, you know, to, to kind of actually the way that companies are structured in our industry, which is making them very attractive to financial buyers because of the risk aversion and the debt. The fact that there's not a lot of debt on balance sheets in our space too. I mean, it, there's a lot of things that have come together in this moment and that's really all uh, fueling the, the M&A pace that we're seeing now. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, I remember how much of a source of pride it was when I would meet with firm owners and they would mention the fact that they were debt free. And, you know, you don't think of that in this day and age, right? Because everybody's taking out loans and, you know, doing this and doing that and leveraging the value of their companies. But a lot of design firms, that's never been a real practice of theirs to do that, to take on massive debt in any way, shape or form. And so this is... I don't even that, think the qualifier of massive is needed. Right. That's true. <laughs> that's debt. true. Yeah. Any debt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They, a lot of these a lot of these uh, firm leaders in the design industry take the, the Dave Ramsey approach to debt. So that's probably... Uh, that is probably appropriate. So what are some of the other factors and, and how... Well, I should say this. How did the pandemic, how did the pandemic that hit us all, you know, punch us all in the gut and at the beginning of 2020, how did that play into the decision-making process of, of firm leaders to consider M&As? So there's a lot of different ways that this has played out. One of the things, though, that I think that is, is worth mentioning, you know, the, the cultural kind of things that we saw during COVID are, are certainly not to, to skip over, but the influx of PPP funds changed the changed the balance sheets in our space, unlike anything that I've ever seen. All of a sudden, companies that had operated on you know a, the tiniest margin of working capital possible that had a balance sheet that looked totally different than it ever has before. 
um, with the cash on hand. And, and just when you have money in the bank, you have the freedom to decide kind of more of your destiny and some confidence to make moves. And you're also able to stabilize and think about how do we, how do we grow? And I think that that initial PPP investment, especially prevented those knee jerk reactions that in our space, you know, we may have seen a lot of people out of work, frankly, you know, just if the work dries up, if a project gets put on hold, most companies don't have enough working capital to be able to support, you know, extra people on payroll. And the, the PPP funds did, I think, what they were intended to do in that it allowed people to keep folks on payroll. Thank goodness, because you know, work came back roaring and many companies grew during that period. We may have had to learn how to do some gymnastics, but the demand and the need, you know, it came right back. But I think for MA specifically though, what it did was clean up things. You know, companies were able to pay off, you know, their equipment, some of their debt. They were maybe able to, to make some investments that will fuel growth. And once you start doing that, it kind of it changes how you run your company. And that liquidation that we saw, we're still seeing it. I mean, as we get the data from year end for last year, companies are in a really good position. And that's when you start getting comfortable making some investments. Yeah. You know, I mean, will you couple that with the fact that maybe they didn't have some of the burdens that they had in running like a full-blown office because a lot of their employees might be working from home and a lot of other factors with remote work and all of that. It, it just, it definitely changed the playing field for how design firm leaders ran their companies. And so you had to almost be willing to pivot and embrace, you know, the differences that that came out of the pandemic. That's right. And the, the cultural facets too, you know, I skipped over those initially because I, I really do think that what gave people the, the, I guess, the comfort in extending themselves more than they maybe had as business owners does stem from a lot of the societal factors that were going on as well. I mean, the, the great kind of migration as it's been dubbed of people moving around during COVID and being able to work from anywhere, that totally, if you if you can get comfortable with people not being in the same office as you, that is such a game changer for how you run your business. And once you start realizing, you know, just how to communicate and manage and, you know, just work across teams and people that aren't in the same, the same office, all of a sudden, I mean, you have a whole, you have access to any labor pool that you're comfortable, you know, accessing. That is the start of thinking about, you know, do we open an office? Like, what do we need an office for? We need people. Do we want to hire them one at a time? Or do we want to bring in a group of people that know how to work together? This is all part of that M&A kind of thought process. Totally agree. Yeah. No, and it's exciting. I mean, like I said, there was, you know, you and I have joked and others have said that, you know, the constant refrain that we always hear in the design industry spaces, that's not how we've always done things, you know? And <laughs> right. now nowadays, that phrase has been kicked to the curb. It's been thrown out of the window. I mean, peop, you know, firm leaders are just saying, you know what, we've this is a paradigm shift for us and we have to think and do differently than we have in the past. And speaking of that, I want to ask you, as you mentioned it, and that culture is one of the biggest things that I'm, I've has been, you know, has been something that M&As are always concerned. When you do an M&A, you're always concerned about the culture fit, right? And so with all of this consolidation and M&A activity that we're seeing, has culture taken a backseat to financial and geographic considerations? No, not at all. This industry doesn't, it is nothing without people. You know, culture really is, it's a non-negotiable. The hard part is assessing culture. And that, that is one of the things that was made much, much uh, more difficult during the pandemic. You know, doing everything via Zoom instead of being able to get to know people or get to see an office or get to see how, how things normally operate, right? Those casual connections that you make at, at an event, you know, at a conference, at a a trade show. Those are really the building blocks of that culture. And not being able to see it in action totally, I think, made it a lot more difficult for firms in our space, which are very culture-focused and relational, to 
you know, to get comfortable proceeding. You're only talking to a couple people at the very top of the firm throughout most of the M&A process and, and cutting off even further kind of uh, insight into how the, like, the inner workings of the company go. That is a huge risk factor. And, and I'll say, coupling that with kind of the great resignation and huge demand for services, we've seen a resurgence in some of the, the retention strategies that really, I mean, truly, I haven't seen retention bonuses at the amounts that I'm seeing in transactions ever. I mean, just in the, the time that I've been doing this. But they went from something, uh, seeing a retention bonus, so that, that's a form of consideration paid to a non-owner, non-key employee who's not getting an employment agreement. So usually those are just reserved for owners, the former owners of the seller, making sure that they're locked in for a number of years. Now we're seeing buyers and sellers you know, negotiate setting aside a pool of money for either everyone else or a, a much bigger group of people. And the thought process is, you know, it, even if they like getting them to commit to another six months or a year post-closing, giving them an incentive to do that, that gives the buyer the ability to say, let me prove my culture is good. You know, here's my down payment on the rest of your career. You know, you can trust us. And we've seen a lot of that in deal making. And I think it's a proxy to the isolation that people maybe felt during COVID and then just the risk of turnover too. Yeah. Can we call those mini golden handcuffs? Is that is that a thing? <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. It, it ones with like the the key is more accessible. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. No, absolutely. No, I lo- I love that. I, I appreciate that insight. That was something I was not aware of, and I I, I didn't know about those uh, retention bonuses going to you know non principal or non stock shareholding employees. So that's that's uh, interesting. What are some of the you know, and we know, we always think of well, what are the benefits of, of M&A is that you get to grow, you get to maybe bring on in one fell swoop a lot of people to join your firm or to come on to your side of the of the team, the playing field, if you will. But what are some of the other unheralded benefits of doing an M&A that most firm owners never consider? I would say that one of the biggest benefits that doesn't really get get noticed or isn't really advocated for very often is the power of the mentorship that can come from combining firms with great leadership teams. There are a lot of companies where you know the, there's a motivation to sell, for example. Maybe there's not a second in command. Maybe we've got somebody whose exit is pretty imminent. And figuring out how to get the folks below them to a point where they can run the company. You know, you can hire people to do that. You can figure out how you can work on the financial aspects. But having someone that you can trust to teach you how to be a good business owner and a good business partner, that doesn't come easy. And one of the benefits of joining with a company is just bringing more of those mentors onto the team. And that it doesn't just apply to sellers either. You know, finding those great partnerships that make it less lonely at the top can be a, a really, it can relieve a lot of burden. I mean, for both sides of the table, you know, just having other folks who've been in your position and owned a business, understand what that's like. We talk to a lot of people, again, on the buy and sell side that will talk about having somebody to, to talk to who's been there and who's on the team. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I, there was another statistic that I saw that, that kind of, you know, ties into this, which is like 92% of non-tech companies are owned by boomers ages 57 to 72. And a lot of these people are in a position where they hadn't necessarily accounted for what was next. And M&A does provide an option for them to consider as they determine what their next steps are so they don't have to fold up the company, but that they can find a suitable suitor that can partner up with them and extend the life of the vision that they had created early on in their career. 
and do so in a way that creates opportunity for everyone else in the company. You know, we, we I know in, in M&A, like where I focus is definitely at the people that own the company and are making the buy and sell decisions. But the motivation to enter any of the discussions, it is almost never just let me get my money and leave. People are proud of what they've built and they're proud of the, the people whose careers they, you know, are in charge of. And, and there is a lot of thought process in how joining a company that can preserve kind of the best of the culture, but help with that growth and get a team to the next level. That's a huge motivator. Wow. So it so- sounds like it's safe to say that, you know, I remember back in the day having to get on the phone and make calls to prospective companies to see if they were even remotely interested in considering M&A. That's probably not the case right now, right? I mean, people are open to having these conversations. And, and if anything, I would probably think that you would suggest that anybody should be open to at least having a conversation to learn more about the process and to learn more about what is possible. It is actually very difficult right now to find um, companies to acquire. It is a the market for M and A. There's so much demand. People are getting call after call after call from I don't know people like me, <laughs> 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 and we are we are heading straight to their uh, delete spam email inboxes. I mean, we're we're all but getting restraining orders filed against us just to get in front of people <laughs> to see if they can spare five minutes out of their busy schedules to hear it out. And I think that if you want to be a buyer in this market. You really have to nail the pitch. You have to treat this like like recruiting. This is selling. This is you. This is your your foot in the door. You know your elevator pitch. It's it is a sales process. And if I could give one piece of advice to buyers, it is to dismantle that initial point of contact process and make it really fit their differentiators. You have to stand out in this market because it is very very crowded. Yeah, and I might add one piece from a communication standpoint, and this is something that we talk about when we do these leadership trainings and some of the other trainings that Zwei Group offers is that when you think about your audience, you'd never want to create a cookie cutter approach to how you would talk to recruit somebody to join your team, nor should you do that when you're, as Jamie said, talking to a multitude of different companies because you need to consider your audience And you need to craft your message to meet the needs of that audience, because a lot of times, you know, you create this, oh, I've got my elevator pitch and you just share it with everybody and it falls on deaf ears because, you know, you might say one thing to one group that really just doesn't resonate with them, but it might for another. So you really need to consider who your audience is, take time to understand them, then craft your message to make sure that it gets maximum effect when you share it. Would you say that? Absolutely. That's, oh yeah. my gosh. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the number one, I mean, <laughs> when I talk to firms that want to be buyers and they they start kind of giving us, you know, here's, here's what we want to make sure that we're positioning ourselves as. You're not going to believe this, but every single firm says their top priority is cultural fit. I don't <laughs> Every <laughs> single one says number one important thing to us is the cultural fit. Right. And that applies to, you know, 10 person firms. It applies to publicly traded firms. It applies to private equity groups. Everyone's culture is their top priority within their organization. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I guess I think that we don't take it a step further and show it. You know, If culture is your fit, like, what do you mean by that? What are the aspects of your culture that make you a gem? What are the differentiators for your company? Know who you are you know, and what that base is. And that's how you stand out in a crowded field. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and especially as there are new players that have gotten into the the M and A space in our in our industry, and I, I was hoping you could speak about this a little bit. Is that private equity has taken note of what's happening in the AEC space, and when historically, when you think of private equity, they were not necessarily interested 
and professional service firms, but now they are interacting with and doing transactions with AEC firms. And I would love for you maybe anecdotally to share some of your experiences as it pertains to private equity getting involved in this space. Well, I have a lot to say on this topic. (laughs) (laughs) I figured you did, so. And I want to be even-handed. So one of the biggest benefits of having an influx of private equity in our space is that it's forcing us to sit up and run our companies like real businesses. Right. You know, you really, you have to pay attention to your working capital. You have to pay attention to, you know, where's the money going? You know, you have to really have a handle on your expenses, your efficiency, and the return on the investment. And that doesn't mean it's all about the numbers, but our industry has a pretty big gap, I think, sometimes between the project work that people want to spend their time on and the things that actually create that long-term value. And the influx of private equity and the valuations that we're seeing in those increased numbers, that's great for industry overall. You know, being an undervalued industry isn't a good thing if that's what you're going to spend your, you know, entire, you know, legacy building. I think getting valuations that more that more closely tie to other types of industries that perform services is a very good thing for this space overall. If we're going to recruit, retain people, you know, you do have to, you want to see people that are able to achieve great wealth in a space. I mean, that's how an industry booms, right? And I think that's really important. I think that's a very good thing. It's definitely not, you know, there's some challenges too, of course. I think that some private equity firms have a bit of a naive view of what you can do with a company that you buy in our space. And you'll see models that will, you know, we've got this record backlog. Therefore, all we have to do is hire twice as many people next year, and then we'll achieve this growth rate and this profitability. And, you know, as we say in Arkansas, (laughs) you just want to say, bless your heart, Right. (laughs) (laughs) you know, good luck finding this many people. Your organic strategy of hiring is that you've got to really be realistic with what the growth rate can be in the space. You know, it's not because we didn't know that we needed to hire, right? Right, right. That that isn't the challenge, you know? And and so I think that diagnosis is important too. And understanding the end markets and the, the actual risk associated with our space. And that is, there is an education component to being a good private equity buyer. And there are some private equity firms that do a great job with this and know what they don't know. It's a, a spreadsheet is a spreadsheet, but you know, an industry is a, is a much more difficult thing to kind of wrap your, your arms around as you and I know. Yeah, absolutely. No. And, and, yeah, and, and a lot of people that come into this industry, they think it's easy to ramp up and, you know, grow a group and, and get a bunch of people, but man, my gosh, uh, you know, Talent acquisition in the design industry space is about as hard as it comes. I mean, period. It's just finding good engineers, finding good architects, great planners, surveyors, great landscape architects. They're out there, but it's not easy to get them. And that's one of the biggest challenges that design firms face right now. And understanding kind of like the how different market sectors, you know, interact with the designers that are within that space also. I mean, that is a huge quirk of our of our industry. When you talk to somebody who's a, a land developer versus a forensic, you know, uh, engineer and kind of what they do and what their, I guess, ability to grow, influence fees, you know, get their work done faster, change the contract structure. You know, there are a lot of nuances there too, you know, and, and I know that this sounds obvious and I know that the listeners are like, oh my gosh, why are you telling me this? <laughs> but if we're talking to people who don't know our space, and you want to achieve that kind of evaluation that you can get with a private equity partner, then it's a mutual education. And it really should be, you know, it, that really can be prepared with an explanation of how we do business and kind of what the growth potential is and what the challenges are to that growth. I think really we can help each other kind of get there so that education is happening. Yeah. 
Now, with all everything that we've just said, and we've we've kind of painted a picture of what the M and A landscape looks like right now in the design industry space. Can you think of any reasons not to do an M and A at this point in time? Well, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I think that there. We talk to a lot of companies that maybe aren't. They need to navigate what they're selling versus the risk tolerance, right? Like if you're going to come to the table with huge backlog and great projections to justify a higher valuation, but you're not like able to offer a, a contingent payment for achieving those numbers, then you're not ready to sell. You're not going to achieve the highest value perhaps by selling. You really have to, I guess, couple where you are in your own kind of energy space with how long of an off-ramp you're going to need to achieve the numbers that, that you're looking for. There are a lot of companies that are better served by a, an internal ownership transition um, than an external one for various cultural reasons. I mean, just, just for all kinds of other reasons too. But I think a lot of sellers are a bit naive with how quickly they'll actually be able to remove themselves from the business. And even if, you, if you've got your head on straight with that topic, once you start presenting numbers about the future and, and start talking about that, that kind of can change the conversation a little bit. And I guess the, the advice would just be to, to make sure that we're selling what we're willing to commit to, right? Or else you're not going to get that off-ramp that you were looking for. And, and maybe your time and your retirement was a little bit more valuable you know, than, the, the, than winning at the negotiation table. Yeah. You know, and, I, and now, now that you say that, it makes me think, because a lot of people, I mean, I hope anybody listening to this understands that Zwei Group offers a wide variety of services in this area, but it, it, you must in the M&A group, end up handing off a lot of clients that would probably be better suited working with the OT group, the Ownership Transition Advisory Group there at Zweig. Is that the case? Absolutely. We work back and forth on projects all the time where we go down one route as far as we can, and then we realize there's another, another opportunity that presents itself. But we definitely go across the table on those transactions for internal and external ownership transitions, definitely. And also strategic planning too, you know, developing a long-term growth strategy with an end in mind, you know, what, what are we trying to get to? Yeah. Which really leads me to realize that a lot of times, sometimes when you say to a, a potential client that, you know, maybe now is not the best time, all that means is that it, it's not no for good. It's just right now, maybe you need to do some of these other things to shore up what you're doing and tighten up the infrastructure of your organization first before you put it out on the block and mm -hmm. try to try to find the highest bidder. Because again, you know, companies, I mean, people want companies that have, have mission, vision, values, have a goal, have a plan. And that's why strategic planning is so important. And so that, you know, I can see somebody being told, no, not right now. It's just not no forever. It's just not right now. And I think that's even that's good to hear as well for some firm leaders that you know maybe it's time for them to kind of corral the groups and and uh, go back to the drawing board and fine tune some things that they need to do internally for their organization so that they can come out the other side even stronger. Absolutely, and, and you know the last point on on this one that I, I think is important to make is that there can be absolutely no relation whatsoever between somebody's ownership concentration and their importance to the organization and. That is not going to work in M&A, you know, buying a company from the people that own it. And it really ties the hands of a buyer when the person who owns the company isn't the one that we need to incentivize, right, to continue growing, to do the work. The one that's actually adding that the longer term value post-closing may not be the one who owns the company or the, you know, the group of folks that own the company. And that disconnect, if there's not a good overlap in leadership 
and ownership and kind of the cultural piece too, right? Like the heart of the company that can cause a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So as we wind up here, I certainly wanted to ask you, because as as I, I get uh, the emails and, and I look at a lot of the posts on LinkedIn, when you guys are congratulating firms that have come together in, in holy merger matrimony, are there any examples that you can point to of a, and I'm using air quotes here, a good M&A transaction that serves the model that you guys are trying to implement at Zwei Group that you guys are really, that you're really excited to talk about? That you can talk about at least. I'm about to get a bunch of emails. Uh, are we talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, off we go. <laughs> One example, I guess, of a, of a really cool transaction that that I, I just love the way that it came together was a company that that had a family ownership group. The parents and actually and one of their children were the owners of the company. And the parents were ready to exit, and that was really the driver of the external sale. And you know the son obviously had a, a different timeline for the exit strategy. Through the transaction, through the courtship process, getting the son in front of you know the, the prospective buyer early on and building that relationship now has this person who is going to be very likely a successor to the CEO of a company that's 10, 20 times the size they were when they sold. It is a wow. really cool story of somebody's ability to change the, their career trajectory by selling, which is counterintuitive. You know, we think about it being an exit and an ending, but watching, I mean, and just watching this company continue to grow and like the clear, I guess, things that they're doing together is it's really cool to me to see, you know, that, that's what we hope for when we bring yeah. companies together. Well, I would imagine that stories like that are kind of what get you up every morning, you know, cause you're like, well, what's next? Can we do this again? You know, wash, rinse and repeat. So what gets me up every morning is deal closings, but <laughs> what warms my heart at the end of the day. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. Well, Jamie, Claire, this has been great. I, I do want to ask you this because, I mean, again, nobody knows what the future holds for us. And there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of money that's about to flood the market from the infrastructure program, I hope. And that's going to impact the design industry quite a bit. And we're probably going to see an accelerate. We'll see if it, it is the accelerant that people think it will be. And I'm speaking of the infrastructure money that's going to hit the marketplace. But I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on the M&A landscape over the next few years? Are you bullish about things? Are you kind of just reserving comment because you're not quite sure in what direction things are going to go? Well, how do you feel about the next two to three years? I don't even want to look beyond that. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly in the next two to three years, absolutely, this pace is going to have to continue. And, you know, when we look at kind of the out the industry forecast and, you know, long term trends, it's much more driven by market data than demographics. And I really want people to focus on the fact that, I mean, the statistic you shared about the ownership concentration and, and the aging group of owners within our industry, there's going to be just literally a need, no matter what the market looks like, you know, whether we stay that the valuations stay where they're at or change at all. For folks to offload their ownership, period. You just have to accept that as a fact of our space. Yeah, um, and that coupled with the fact that it's tough to bring people in, and the outlook for folks entering our industry in the next few years isn't great either. You know, this is going to have to be a talent strategy, but it's also, a, you know, a potentially an ownership concentration strategy a response to, I guess, a concentration of ownership and an aging group of owners. And I think that what we'll see in the next few years, because it's hard to find companies in our space, right? Because you know, there's a lot of, of transactions going on. They're consolidating companies at a pretty quick rate. The next thing that's going to happen are, is a technology investment, 
we're going to see more M&A uh, of AEC firms investing in technology and technology firms investing in AEC. That's definitely going to be part of the landscape in the near term. And we're already seeing it, by the way. There have been several notable transactions uh, in the last few weeks announced um, of acquiring companies that have you know, just smart building technology or, or some piece of you know, what they do that can really make the work more efficient in our space. And once we become a, anything close to a tech industry, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's when things are about to, th- then we can really buckle up. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's exciting though. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're, we are seeing that, that migration of the way that, that design firms are running and operating and it's not so much the old wineskin approach to design it. And I mean, they are merging technology with a lot of the things that they do on at the drafting table, at the design table. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And then of course, new things are being developed every day. So it's, it's, it's definitely going to make for an interesting landscape for sure. The other thing I want to point out too that um, you know, I don't think is talked about a lot, and this is a feature of private equity entering the space, whether you're you know, looking to be acquired by private equity or just functioning within the same you know, ecosystem, which we all are now. But financial buyers often have corporate social responsibility obligations and diversity you know, expectations within their company or the funds that they're using may have certain expectations for the companies they will invest in and what that criteria looks like. And I think that what may be a, I don't know, perhaps an ironic outcome of this uh, change in the investor profile, the folks from private equity might end up being what gets us to actually embrace diversity, equity and inclusion in our space, which is, I think, something that people aren't really maybe paying attention to, but the, the requirements for, you know, board composition, right? And they're just a diversity of, of ownership and leadership that come from some of the larger financial institutions, right? And those investment platforms, there are requirements there that our industry hasn't really gotten to yet. And I think that it's something worth talking about. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% because uh, to be quite honest with you, I never pursed my lips to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion until after uh, George Floyd. And and we did a bunch of episodes on it here on this Why Glitter podcast. But I mean, I, I I always say better late than never. And if that's what it will mean for private equity to be involved in this space, I say have at it because um, it's been a long enough it's been a long enough journey uh, for us to have that conversation. And, and I and I think it will make it um, it will make for a richer uh, design industry environment across the board. Of course it will. And it will start influencing how our clients within the space buy services. It will start, it'll spur the conversations that you hope happen, you know, as an outcome of something like this, of just needing to respond to an economy that says we need to look different than we do today. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. This has been good. You, you've dropped, uh, you've dropped some nuggets across the bow, Jamie Claire, if I could use that expression. It was, it's been, it's been really good. Now I do want to mention this because if you're listening to this before the end of April, of 2022, you guys at Zwei Group are doing an M&A Next Symposium in Charleston, South Carolina. Is that still happening? Oh, it sure is. Okay. And what is the goal of that event? Oh, wow. The goal of that event is just to get back out there and talk about M&A with our industry. It's been a okay. long couple of years, Randy. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're sick of Zooms over here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you, you and me both. But I mean, Charleston, South Carolina is going to be such a great backdrop of a city to go visit. You've got the ordinary. You've got some outstanding restaurants that are there. That My agenda to, is packed yeah, and has nothing I, to do with M&A. I got a lot I, of things to do. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But I would encourage anybody listening to this, if you want to go spend a couple of days with Jamie Claire 
Kaiser and Chad Kleinens and the rest of the outstanding advisory team at Zwei Group, you really should make it a point to visit with them April 28th and 29th down in Charleston, South Carolina. If you're listening to this post of that date, then never fear. You can always reach out to Jamie Claire. What's the best way for people to reach out and contact you? The best way for people to contact me, uh, you can email me, and I bet that can be put in the episode notes. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can call me. You can get in touch with me any way that you would like. And if you want restaurant recommendations for Charleston, you got it. You want to talk about (laughs) buying, selling, anything related to driving long-term value in your company, give me a call. That's it. That's it. Well, Jamie Claire Kaiser, thank you so much for joining us on the Zwag Letter Podcast. These get-togethers are too infrequent, so we've got to do it more often. But I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to do this. And uh, I'm sure there are going to be some some great questions that will arise out of this particular episode. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, folks, that's another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. To learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry, please visit zweiggroup.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter, and have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today. And remember, all the show notes from everything that we discussed on this episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast will be available online at zweiggroup.com. So I encourage you to visit there. For more information about Zweig Group's advisory services or any of Zweig Group's publications, visit zweiggroup.com. You can subscribe again to the Zweig Letter Podcast wherever you listen to it. And please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter Podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to the Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.